Hello and welcome to a special edition of the Lancet Psychiatry podcast. My name is Niall Boyce. I am the editor of the Lancet Psychiatry. I'm up in Edinburgh for the Royal College of Psychiatrists International Congress, but I have slipped away for the afternoon from talking about the future of psychiatry. Today I'm going to be talking about its past with Professor Rab Houston, who is Professor of Modern History at the University of St Andrews. Hello, Rab. Hi. So, Rab, you are the uh, producer, presenter of the History of Psychiatry podcast, which is how many episodes now? Well, the first series is recently finished, and that was 44 episodes. The second starts this very afternoon, in fact, in about 45 minutes from now, and it's got 26 episodes. What's your aim with this series of podcasts? Why look at the history of psychiatry? The short answer is I got into the history of psychiatry because I was working on a completely different topic and I came across some fascinating sources which really got a hook into me. There was a a famous historian who once said that when we arrive at a point in the sources and we encounter something that we find unimaginable, then that's probably the best starting point for trying to understand an alien mentality. And that's what got me into it. What got me into doing the history of um, psychiatry podcasts was a purely instrumental goal. You probably know about the Research Excellence Framework, the REF. Now, the REF requires all subjects to show a demonstrable impact on the real world, in other words, to bring about change. Now, if you're in economics or medicine or politics, then that's quite simple. But if you're in history, it's a bit more difficult. And because I had this interest in history of psychiatry, I thought I would try and reach out to a much broader audience reach out to psychiatrists, social workers, um, potentially also sufferers, and try and make my impact, my engagement with the public by that method. Now, when we're talking about the history of psychiatry, you are dealing with a period really before, I think, most, uh, most people would, would think of psychiatry as being a, a thing. You're, you're, you're starting really in, in the early modern period. And your idea there, as, as I understand it, is not just to have the history of psychiatry told from the perspective of the elite, the physicians or uh, the authorities, but also from the perspective of, of ordinary individuals and uh, ordinary people experiencing what we would these days call mental illness. Yes, indeed. Uh, What I do is variously described as social history or the new social history. So I come at history from the bottom up. And I'm more interested, yes, in people who have experience of mental problems, their immediate families and their communities. Because in the past, it was usually people who knew someone who had mental problems that dealt with them. So most histories of psychiatry are the opposite of what I do. They're kind of top-down. Um, And so what I thought I'd do was try to blend all approaches, looking at social history, also looking at medicine, looking at institutions, professionalisation, the political context in which psychiatric care is provided and which ideas develop. So a multidisciplinary approach that looks at 500 years of history. And if we're talking about the early modern period, so around the, the Renaissance in Europe would be another way of putting it. The, the popular image there is of Bethlehem Hospital and of the, uh, the institutionalisation, uh, as uh, Foucault would, would have put it. Um, but also, 
if you read something like, say, Keith Thomas's Religion and the Decline of Magic, you have the idea of those informal consultations, what we these days call folk remedy or even magical approaches. Yes, I mean, one of the interesting things about the past, and you, you get it to a lesser extent in less developed countries nowadays, is, the, is that the landscape is medically plural. Okay, you have people called physicians who are the top of the profession. There's not very many of them until the 18th or the 19th century. Below that, you get a range of people who learn on the job, like surgeons and apothecaries. But almost anyone can help someone with mental problems because a lot of it simply involves talking. And that can mean talking to your clergyman. It can mean talking, as you say, to a, a wise man or a, a wise woman. It can simply mean talking to friends and neighbours. Obviously, it was a world in which drugs of the kind that we expect as a central part of psychiatry now didn't exist. Most of what was available was simply a palliative. So it's a, it's a very different medical environment. But it's one which has, I think, echoes for nowadays because I think there's a tendency in psychiatry to move away from the white coat approach to a greater involvement of people and to something which is more inclusive and holistic, if you like. That inclusive and holistic point is very interesting because what we're used to dealing with now, one of the things which uh, comes up and up again at, at, at psychiatric conferences is the mind-body division and the idea that we need to get beyond this idea that mind and body are separate things. And from my understanding of the early modern period, that wasn't quite so stark a division at that, mo at that moment in history. No, I think it's something which develops in the 17th and 18th centuries up till then with the Galenic school of medicine which obtained in most of Europe, Galen was of course an ancient Greek borrowing from Hippocrates, the Galenic school taught that mind and body were integrated. So again, it's, uh, yes, in, in curious ways, the 15th and 16th centuries were actually much more like the late 20th and early 21st century um, than, when, than were, for example, the 19th century when you do see the beginnings of what you might describe as the triumph of uh, a medical or medicalised approach to mental problems. And what we have as well is really, uh, I suppose, the professionalisation of mental health care, the idea that it's a specialised thing, that it's almost taken out of the community structures in which it would previously have been embedded. Yes, absolutely. If, if there is a medical profession developing, it's not there until the 19th century at the earliest. The word psychiatrist, as far as I can see, isn't used until the 1860s. And the number of people who specialise in mental medicine, even in the late 19th century, can probably be numbered in the hundreds rather than the thousands. I think modern psychiatry is, is really a creation of the 20th century, and it's based primarily on the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of the American Psychiatric Association and the World Health Organization's uh, ICD-10. I'm going to ask you a very ambitious question. Um, oh dear. Okay. Uh, one of the issues which comes up again and again with global mental health is the idea that there isn't a, a universal psychiatry, that uh, what we treat uh, in DSM or ICD as symptom clusters in Western European countries, in the United States of America, don't necessarily apply in other bits of the world. And that if we try to do that, we're effectively imposing the wrong model. Through time, 
Might that also be the case, that there are certain psychiatric phenomena, that there are certain mental illnesses which are dependent on where you go in history? Yes, that's, that's certainly true um, with diagnostic labels. In the 16th and 17th centuries, most people were either described as manic or melancholy. In the 19th century, that's expanded, and the diagnosis dementia, which is not dementia in the sense that we understand it nowadays, but a much broader and more amorphous category, comes in. I've always believed it's necessary to contextualise the way people present and understand mental problems in the past because the kind of cultural milieu in which they lived was very different. Now the most obvious difference right up to the 20th century in, in Britain and Ireland was that people saw many conditions through a religious um, filter if you like. They presented themselves and they understood and articulated their symptoms in religious terms. Now you can transpose that to other countries. For example, people with depression in modern China don't present with depression, they present with sore backs. In Japan, the diagnosis depression is new as far as I can make out to the 1980s and the 1990s. Before that, it wasn't a major clinical category. Now, there are plenty of examples of this in the historic past. Um, one of my favourite at the moment, because I've got a research student working on it, is something called puerperal insanity. So that's a psychological disorder which manifests itself usually just after a woman has given birth to a child. Puerperal insanity as a diagnostic category is invented in the 1820s and has virtually died out by the time of the First World War. Nowadays, we probably classify it in a whole range of specific ways. But that's just another example of the historically and culturally contingent nature of diagnoses. And at the same time, when you were talking about that link between religious factors and mental illness, I feel that sometimes today we still have the, the ghost, the shadow of, of that, that religiosity. Uh, for instance, in terms of suicide, I feel a lot of the taboos and the difficulties talking about suicide today might be a hangover of the particular medieval and, and early modern religious taboos against it. Yes, that's, that's absolutely true. Um, I think the, uh, the de-Christianisation, as some historians call it, or some sociologists even call it, of British society is actually remarkably recent. It started in earnest in the 1960s and now seems to be more or less entirely um, complete. In the historic past, Christianity, at least in the, in the West, was the religion of 99.9% .9 of the population. And for 2,000 years, people were taught that suicide was not only a crime against man, and it really was a crime against man until quite recently in Britain, but also a crime against God. In other words, you were usurping God's right to give life and to take life. It's, it's a heavy burden, and one which is still born, I think, in many countries around the world. And when you look at the history of psychiatry moving up to the present day, clearly the major figure coming in is, is Freud. And it would maybe be superfluous for me to ask, what did Freud change? But uh, do you think that he is really the pivotal figure in uh, changing our view of psychiatry, our conception of the mind, or are there other influences which you've detected through your more um, social historical approach? 
I think that Freud is, has been tremendously important in psychologizing modern life. When you say to people, I work on the history of psychiatry, they will usually say one, one of two things. Both begin with F, one is Freud and the other is Foucault. To me, looking in much more depth, um, trying to get beneath the, the great men of the history of psychiatry, there are many, many more influences. Uh, I see influences from surgery, I see influ influences from pharmacology. There are so many, uh, and I try to deal with them in my podcasts, but I can't really summarise them now in a, in a short interview like this. One thing which I think would be interesting to talk about is this notion in psychiatry, I think one of the perceptions of it is that it's the specialty which doesn't progress. What, what do you think? Do you see a, a progress or do you see the reiteration of certain themes? And where do you think psychiatry really is now? Is it a particularly pivotal moment now, do you think? I see things moving in, to be honest, I see things moving in cycles. I think that what psychiatry does lack are the kind of landmark developments that have taken place in physical medicine. Things like the invention of inoculation and, and vaccination for smallpox, which truly did transform infant mortality in the, the late 18th and early 19th century, or the emergence of germ theory. There aren't the same landmarks. There were promised landmarks. Um, lobotomy or leucotomy was a promised landmark of the or, mid-20th century. Or syphilis of GPI. Yeah. The idea we were going to have a germ theory of psychiatry. Yeah. Which that, that didn't happen. I suppose there is a landmark there, but it's the invention of penicillin or the discovery of penicillin and, and what it did for general paralysis or general paresis of the insane. But it's not specific to psychiatry. I think psychiatry is at a crossroads now and for me and for some of the people I've worked with, like Uta Frith, the specialist on autism, it's the genetic thing. In other words, the idea that you can identify with a degree of ontological certainty that's never been present in psychiatry, what a condition is, and then hopefully do something about it. Now, I think a lot of psychiatrists are, regard that as a major breakthrough. The problem I have with that, seen from a social psychological point of view, is that human beings aren't just their genes. They are the product of a whole range of um, environmental, broadly speaking, environmental factors which influence how they present their symptoms, and we talked about that earlier, but also how they experience them. And at the same time, it may well be that the availability of drugs which can do specific things for specific conditions which they couldn't do for centuries, right up to the 1950s and the 1960s, will only take us part of the way to understanding the human mind and how people experience mental problems and how, hopefully, they get better from them. So as things go in cycles, my last question really relates to, uh, to, to my first, which is that psychiatry, in, in my view, is almost a prisoner of its past that uh, we hear about the terrible human rights abuses of psychiatry, we have the, uh, the false dawns, the mission creep, the overpromising, uh, and I think it, it can sometimes feel like a struggle for psychiatry to be rid of its past. So I can understand why a psychiatrist might look at the history of psychiatry and say, I'd rather draw a sort of firm line, if not build a wall between myself and that. But is it nevertheless important, do you think, for clinicians to have a reckoning with the past of psychiatry, with its 
its successes and its failures? Yes, I think it is. I mean, one of the reasons why I started doing this subject is because I read the obligatory introductory chapters of many psychiatric textbook books which deal with the history of psychiatry, and I was frequently struck by two things. One was a tendency to exaggerate just how bad it was in the past, and the other is to search only for the origins of modern best practice. And that includes, for example, looking at the professionalisation of psychiatry in the 19th and 20th centuries. So for me, a knowledge of history is absolutely essential. It, it may seem odd for a professor to say this, but one of the things that history teach, has taught me is humility. It's taught me that there are different ways to do things, there are different ways to understand things, and that people live in a whole range of social and cultural contexts which influence their lives. And I think that's something that most psychiatrists, to be honest and to be blunt, would do well to remember. So what's next in your series? For me, the one that's starting now in about 20 minutes, 25 minutes time, is called The Voice of the Mad. The Voice of the Mad uses extracts written by people who knew they had mental problems or who others thought had mental problems. And it involves telling the audience about the experience of mental disorders in the past. I try to explain the context, which we talked about, in which people experienced mental problems, the importance of things like religion, different scientific knowledge. And what I've also got this time round is both the extract on the website and the St Andrews University Amateur Dramatic Society Mermaids doing voiceovers with the extracts, which was a, a fun exercise getting the students involved in this. The third series, which will start in January or February 2018, will be me doing the reverse of what's happening now, which is interviewing psychiatrists and other mental health specialists and carers about the, the past and the present of psychiatry. So it's, you know, it's kind of an extension of what's happening today. So where can readers find your podcast? You can find them on my website if you go to the University of St Andrews website and put in my name, Rab Houston, you should go straight to my webpage. The actual webpage that's got the History of Psychiatry podcasts and various other things on it is all the usual stuff then arts.standrews with a hyphen dot ac dot uk forward slash psychhist. P-S-Y-C-H-H-I-S-T. For today, we're going to wrap up the podcast and I'm going to return to the present. Uh, but do check out Rab's podcast. The past episodes are all on there and uh, it sounds as if the next series is going to be well worth a listen as well. And I hope that uh, you will download and uh, listen to the next Lancet Psychiatry podcast as well. But for now, thank you very much and thank you, Rab.